Listen to The Astonishing Junk Drawer exclusively at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. Is anyone here? I don't even know. I hope they are. Hashtag ontological shook. Who wrote Wine Country with Emily? Liz Kakowski. Speaking of blue entities, have you seen the documentary The Nightmare? Oh, yes. I've learned that this is part of my astral plane, but I spelled it P-L-A-I-N. No rules on the junk drawer. I didn't talk about my actual abduction. I'm thrilled to hear point of view from you. (laughs) Any thoughts or news on the South American alien mummy? Astonishing Legends would like to thank Squarespace, BetterHelp, Skylight Frame, Policy Genius, Masterclass, Uncommon Goods, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. In November of 2014, Astonishing Legends was barely a month old when we decided to cover the disappearance of Amelia Earhart, a pioneering woman aviator who, along with her navigator, Fred Noonan, vanished in an attempt to fly around the world in 1937. We chose the topic the same way we still choose topics today. We were fascinated by her disappearance and wanted to know more about it. There was no way we could know how intertwined Astonishing Legends and the Earhart mystery would become at the time. But looking back on it now, it's clear to us how much her story and our pursuit of it informed many of our research techniques and approach to topics. As researchers, it was the first time we were exposed to the idea of competing camps of belief. And when we say competing, we mean really competing. In this case, there were groups of very well-educated, well-meaning, and focused individuals with a vast collection of skill sets who've been singularly pursuing this mystery since it happened almost 90 years ago. We were somewhat surprised by how little cooperation existed between the different investigations into her disappearance, but it was an invaluable lesson to us as we have since encountered the same thing dozens of times in the ensuing 265 episodes of the show on a wide range of topics. That series also taught us about confirmation bias, the concept that subconscious personal bias can be nearly impossible to avoid when you're researching something. It affects your work no matter who you are. We've learned a lot more about the human component of looking into mysteries since then, but it's safe to say that our research into Amelia Earhart's disappearance was the beginning of that. So this topic was formative for us in a lot of ways, and our coverage of it caught the attention of a podcaster who is doing what will always be the definitive podcast on Amelia, Chasing Earhart, hosted by Chris Williamson. Chris reached out to us, and we formed a friendship bond with him and his family that is as strong today as it was back then. In 2018, Chris invited us to speak on a panel he had orchestrated in Earhart's hometown, Atchison, Kansas. Perhaps you've heard of it. It's not only her hometown, it's the location of the Sally House. But that's another story. Over the years, our fascination with what happened to Earhart and Noonan had us revisiting it a few times, perhaps more than we should have. But the fact of the matter is, this mystery is a pillar of our foundation. And whenever there is a revelation in this legend, Well, we're going to cover it. Which brings us to tonight. Also in 2018, we had an Earhart researcher on the show named Bill Snavely. Prior to his appearance, we thought we were pretty familiar with all the prevailing theories on what happened to her. And we were. And Chris Williamson, even more so. But Bill had a new theory. Who cares, he might say. 
Well, we did, because Bill Snavely was the only person looking for Amelia Earhart who had found a plane. Some other researchers claimed to have pieces of what might have been part of her plane, or objects that were congruous with ones she might have had in her possession. But only Bill had a full airplane, and the math and reasoning he had done that led him to it was solid, rooted in science and careful analysis about the prevailing winds, her electrotanese capabilities, and basic logic of what an expert aviator and navigator would do if they found themselves facing an unexpected fuel shortage on the way to their next destination. Most importantly, it could be easily explained, even to the layman. It was calculated, rational, logical, required very little speculation, and it made sense. Bill joined us in February of 2019 with an update after Buka 2, a recent dive on the mysterious plane he had discovered. That bonus show was commercial-free and only 25 minutes, and in it, Bill talked about recovering a piece of glass consistent with the landing lights in the nose cone of Amelia's Lockheed Electra 10E. That, however, was not the only thing Bill's team found. More exciting discoveries were kept under wraps, until tonight. Many of you asked for updates, but none could be shared beyond what Bill had said on our show for three years due to NDAs with a third party. Well, that time has passed, and tonight, Bill Snavely joins us again, along with podcaster and friend Chris Williamson, to discuss Bill's astonishing new book, Lost in Flight, Amelia Earhart giving cover as a decoy for a spy plane. It turns out, Bill has been pretty busy since he was last on Astonishing Legends five years ago not only with testing being done on previously unreported discoveries from the plane in Buka, but with research that explains a lot of what we've long considered the two most viable theories into her disappearance. Perhaps both are true. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Not much more than a month ago, I was on the other shore of the Pacific, looking westward. This evening, I looked eastward over the Pacific. In those fast-moving days which have intervened, the whole width of the world has passed behind us, except this broad ocean. I shall be glad when we have the hazards of its navigation behind us. Amelia Earhart, a few days before her final flight. Join us tonight for our show about Bill Snavely's new research and his book, Lost in Flight. And we're back. Oh, is that it? Okay. Yeah. That it. that we are. I like that one. It's nice oh. and simple and quick. Uh, right to, folks, right we point. got a really cool show. <laughs> what? I said right to the point. Right to the point. Folks, we got a really cool show tonight. We just wanted to remind everyone that the Astonishing Legends Network is expanding. And if you haven't already, check out the Midnight Library and the new show, Scared All the Time, hosted by Ed Vicola and Chris Kulari. It's on its own RSS feed now, meaning you can find and subscribe to it anywhere you get your podcasts. And it's kind of blowing up. So if you want to be able to say you were listening to it before it was cool to listen to it, mm. you'd better subscribe now. Now, would Ed and Chris say it was cool to listen to it from the jump? Because that's how they roll. Or would they say from the slap? Because it's slapping. It slaps. Oh, yeah, it's slapping. Slaps. It's fire. You know this, I don't it? know. Fire's already dead, I think. Uh, they probably would. Anyway, uh, find both the Midnight Library and the new show, Scared All the Time, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, very quick correction on the announcement of the beanies slash caps being back in the store that Scott did on our last episode. Upon closer inspection, we found that they were flawed, so we had to reorder those. As soon as the new batch comes in, we'll get them back in the store and let everybody know. 
Production is always tricky, and here's proof. Our merch team just found a bunch of old and extra stuff in the warehouse that we need to move out to make room for new stuff next year. We have over 100 of the Blanket Fortiana pint glasses, and then another 48 of those that were a bad print run. So those are like super dark. They came out dark. I don't, they're going to be real cheap. They they may be free just shipping. I don't know. We're going to take a look at it. They won't mm. be too much if you want to get one of those. There are also nine OG Skinwalker Ranch character glasses. Not sure how that happened. And some of the other ones. And there's a ton of the original Al, the AL logo, coffee mugs, the camp mugs. I, I mean, it's a lot of stuff. But what about the face melting thing, though? Yeah, there there was a pretty big batch of this sort of camping look ceramic uh, mugs yeah. with the old Al logo or AL logo that didn't spend enough time in the oven after they put the logos <laughs> on them. And as a result, Astonishing Al's face might fall off. It's it's really disturbing. Yeah, but in a good way, right? Well, well yeah, unless you paid a lot oh, for them, which right. brings me to my next point. The other thing is there's no way to tell if you've got one that the face is going to melt off because it's <laughs> it's kind of random. So yeah. this is the thing. It's not just if you put it in the dishwasher. Al's face can melt off even with hand washing. Oh, really? So mm. anyway, we want to move these things off our shelves. But since there's no idea whether Al's face is going to stay on them or melt off, we're going to list them at $4 each, plus oh. whatever their shipping is to wherever you live. So. Well, what a bargain. And we should call those the Indiana Jones mugs. You know how they did that effect, though, with the uh, they, yeah. they froze the guy and then they had hot. Did you know that they had hot air uh, yeah. and sped it up? Uh, so he looked like, yeah, he was just running. Yeah. All righty, folks. Well, we got a great show for you tonight. We welcome back two guests to the show who we've had on before, author and aviation researcher Bill Snavely and our friend, researcher and podcast producer, Chris Williamson. As explained in our cold open, Bill's been on the show several times, and we were on a panel with him in 2018 in Amelia's hometown of Atchison, Kansas, which we were invited to by tonight's other guest, Chris Williamson. Chris is the long-running host of the world's only dedicated Amelia Earhart podcast, Chasing Earhart. He's also the creator and co-host of the popular podcast, Vanished. Additionally, Chris is the author of two books, Rabbit Hole, The Vanishing of Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan, and Take the Money and Run, The Vanishing of D.B. Cooper. We're thrilled to have these gentlemen on the show tonight to talk about Bill's latest book, which carries within it some shocking revelations about Amelia Earhart's mission and the complexities of it. We highly recommend you check out his new book, it's called Lost in Flight, Amelia Earhart Giving Cover as a Decoy for a Spy Plane. And there's only one place to buy this book, folks. That's at specialbooks.com. It is not available on Amazon or anywhere else. Go to specialbooks.com and pick it up, and we will, of course, have that link and display it on the webpage for this episode. Yes, it, it's really quite something. When you buy it, you can also get a digital copy uh, if you want, which you can start reading right mm -hmm. away. So again, check out specialbooks.com and look for Lost in Flight. Okay, so Sarah, let's roll our discussion with Bill Snavely and Chris Williamson. Well, folks, we are thrilled to welcome back a couple of guests who have both been on this show a few times over the years, going way back for Astonishing Legends. So tonight, I would like to say thank you to Bill Snavely for joining us again, and Chris Williamson, who you guys may remember from Chasing Earhart. He's had done a lot of other podcasts since then, which we'll be talking about. <laughs> Bill, thank you for joining us again. Can you say hello to our listeners? Hello out there. I'm Bill Snavely, head of Project Blue Angel. I'm delighted to talk with you today. And Chris, will you please say hello to everyone? Uh, it's been a minute since you've been on as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. Uh, my name is, as Scott said, Chris Williamson. I'm the host of Chasing Earhart, the co-host of Vanished, and uh, the host of Me and My Friends. So a lot on the plate. Yeah, which we've been on. 
That's right. And then Forrest, you were on Vanished as well, right? Yeah, I had uh, interviewed Chris essentially for his book, Rabbit Hole, that was a compilation of all of his interviews. He's Chris here is the Jim Harold of the podcast in the Miriam <laughs> Earhart world. Oh. He has gotten so many interviews and been such a now an archive and repository for all of the big names and the knowledgeable people in this subject that uh, it was time for a book. And so that's mm-hmm. what we talked about and, and just some of his theories. And But we have not yet talked about the theory that we're going to talk about tonight. Now we have broached it, but there is a little bit of a, an interesting, really intriguing angle to this one, I would say, because mm-hmm. it, it expands on some thoughts that we brought up before. But Scott and I felt that we had some good leads on that, at least to consider it, the hypothesis here. But Bill has dug up some more stuff since then that really ties us together. And once I'd finished his book, it's pretty compelling, I got to say. Yeah, uh, Bill did the work. We yeah. posited, and then we went on and talked <laughs> about right. some UFOs and Bigfoots. And then while we were doing that, Bill was doing the work on this. So we're we're thrilled to have him on for that. And he is the gentleman, for those of you who might remember, who has found an aircraft in Buka in the water that we're fairly certain is Amelia Earhart's plane, and that has not changed. We still believe that. And there were other things that has happened since then that he didn't necessarily want to talk about until he got down the road. So we have a fair amount of new developments tonight. But the first thing we're going to do is start with the crux of this particular reason, the reason for this interview and and having you back on, Bill. The first part of that is that you've written a new book called Lost in Flight, Amelia Earhart Giving Cover as a Decoy for a Spy Plane. And this is published by Paragon. You can buy this book, which I would highly recommend you do. You can actually get a digital copy and a print copy at the same time, which is great if you like to do research at specialbooks.com, just like it sounds, you know, S-P-E-C-I-A-L, books.com. They get it shipped out pretty quick. We ordered ours. They We got them fast, and you get the digital copy even quicker if you order it. So that's uh, www.specialbooks.com. The publisher there is actually a friend of ours introduced to us by these two gentlemen. He's a great guy, and this uh, printing is incredibly intriguing. Lots of amazing pictures and information in it. So uh, we'll be bringing that up a few times. Again, Lost in Flight, Amelia Earhart giving cover as a decoy for a spy plane by Mr. William Pennington Snavely Jr. Bill, tonight we had talked about different ways to start out, and Recently, you had been in communication with Pratt and Whitney, the manufacturers of the engines in Amelia Earhart's Electra Tinny and all the Electras, right? Well, they did. They all have Pratt and Whitney engines. They did, didn't they? Just variations of it, or just variations did? of it? Yeah. You had said that you were going to uh, share a summary with us that you recently shared with Pratt and Whitney. Can I just ask you before you start that? Why are you talking to Pratt and Whitney right now? I was talking to Pratt and Whitney because of the fact that the engines possibly could still be pulled up and checked from the plane. And I was concerned because the engines were actually changed by Furman Gray in Indonesia. And I wanted to make sure that we were able to go back either with the serial numbers or with the type of engines and make sure what we were looking at. Because what she took off with in the United States isn't what she ended up with at the end. So I wanted to talk to Pratt Whitney about that. And they were most kind in asking for Chris. And they asked uh, me to go on a webinar. And Chris was kind enough to agree. And I thought it was a great idea. 
Mm-hmm. So in this discussion, are you going to be laying out some of what led you to write this book, what the, the evolving facts that you've discovered with relation to this story? Yes. And in the first part, which is the Pratt-Whitney part, I'll be talking primarily about the first plane or what I call plane one, and then we'll evolve and talk further about a second plane. A second aircraft. A second aircraft that I knew about other than through the local oral history that I'd heard back as far as 2010 or 2012, in which they said that uh, two planes took off from lay hours apart, neither plane was ever seen again. And I have a great respect for oral history from the natives. And it suddenly rang back on my brain I guess probably March or April when I was talking with Japanese capture folks. Okay, that's a good little seed. We're going to circle back on a lot of this stuff. There's a lot of fun questions to ask about the engines and the fact that we are now discussing the possibility of a second aircraft. Would you go ahead and lead into uh, what you had said on the webinar to Pratt & Whitney? I indicated uh, to the audience that I grew up in Storrs, Connecticut. Both my parents were pilots, and so was I. I'm also a scuba diver and received my master's degree in social work from the University of Connecticut. Growing up, I lived overseas for three years and learned the value of oral history. I have a curiosity for solved mysteries. My curiosity grew when I realized 70% of Amelia Earhart's route was never searched. Amelia was a courageous pilot, scholar, poet, author, and mentor to women and young girls. And amazingly, she still is popular today. Fred Noonan, Amelia's navigator, was trained first on ships and became Pan Am's best navigator, according to his bosses. In 2005, I retired from Maryland State Service and flew to Rabaul in Papua New Guinea with a simple plan. I wanted to track Amelia's flight from Ley, New Guinea, covering the 70% of her flight that was never searched, one island at a time, starting close to her takeoff, incorporating native oral history. I planned to make six island studies, one a year until I reached the Gilbert Islands. I never expected to be lucky on my first trip to Rabao at the Hamamas Hotel. Three policemen from three different provinces were being trained by a trainer from Australia. As I rode to the airport, getting ready to leave Rabaul, the three policemen asked me what I was doing in Rabaul, which was well off the beaten path. I told them I was searching for Amelia Earhart's airplane. Dominic Char, the quietest of the three, sat behind me. He spoke up and said he knew of an unidentified plane underwater near Buka at Metsungan Island. He asked me to give him five characteristics of her plane and told me to call him in three weeks. I did, and all five characteristics matched. Buka is the easternmost island of Papua New Guinea and the northernmost island of the Solomon Islands. A boy on the beach at Metsungan saw the plane come down through a fierce thunderstorm, left wing on fire, both engines still running, but almost out of gas at 20 hours and 14 minutes Greenwich Mean Time, about 6 a.m. local time. The plane landed on a cage just off the beach. 
He said they were working in their radios. Swift current moved the plane. It went down a steep slope underwater, 109 feet below. The boy on the beach was called a liar due to a loud thunderstorm. They hadn't heard the plane crash and had already gone underwater. It wasn't until Teolo was sponge diving in 1995 that the plane was spotted during one of his free dives. In 2001, the boy who witnessed the plane, Ditch, died. During a stopover in Indonesia, Furman Gray and a team from Lockheed, according to Furman, replaced her engines with powerful senior WASP engines, R-1340s, which would be needed on takeoff at Leigh, New Guinea. Lay presented a real problem for Amelia and Fred Lockheed because the envelope said the plane couldn't weigh more than 15,300 pounds in order to take off on a paved runway, 3,000 feet of runway, and they tried it actually with 15,300 pounds on an unpaved runway. And the most they could get in the tanks because of the weight of 15,300 pound restrictions was 950 gallons of fuel. It was literally at weighted capacity. At 10 a.m. takeoff, it was so hot, oil drums on the ground were pinging as they expanded in the sun. The Pan Am pilot flying overhead reported as the plane roared down the runway, it bounced into the air in the final 50 yards at the point where a road crossed the runway. As pilots know, it was ground effect. In essence, the, the plane was being supported by the ground and wasn't actually flying. When it went over the cliff at the end of the runway, it then carved out circles six feet above the water until it flew out of sight. What powerful, durable, dependable engines those were. Pratt and Whitney should be very proud of the engines they built. As they flew to altitude, they flew into a 26-mile-an-hour headwind, sustained at over 20 knots at Howland. The South Pacific trade winds were not known until the British discovered it in 1943. The first third of the route, Amelia thought she was flying at 150 miles an hour, which she reported. 20 minutes later, she was able to factor in ground speed when she flew over the Nicomano Islands. She found she was flying at less than 107 knots an hour and was an hour late to that point. Police Chief Cade heard Emilio and his Kent Atwater shortwave when she flew over Nauru's phosphate lights at night. She was an hour and a half late behind schedule. Gas level was down to below 322 gallons left and she was just over halfway. She would have needed 428 plus gallons to come into Howland on fumes. The 950 gallons that she took off with was not going to be sufficient. On the fly, they turned back toward Buka, the only airport they could still reach. Amelia turned just after midnight Greenwich Mean Time. If she had not turned back, Amelia's plane would have fallen out of the sky at 19 hours, 10 minutes Greenwich Mean Time. It didn't. She had five more communications right up to 2014 Greenwich Mean Time. Amelia was able to shift from a burn rate of 48 
gallons per hour to 38 gallons per hour with a tailwind. Buka had a 2,300-foot runway they'd flown over on their way toward Howland. Unfortunately, it was now covered and obscured by a violent thunderstorm they couldn't get under without peril. The rest was witnessed by the boy on the beach. To date, I've paid for seven dives by five dive teams who've located a femur head, three teeth, one of the labs indicated on a number of samples, a male of European origin. Fred Noonan was of European origin. We also have a landing light that says axe brand with two axe handles pointed up, similar to a close-up of a picture of her landing lights on her actual plane. Time, distance, and fuel match. We can tell by the short stubby fender the plane is a Lockheed, and by the landing light, it's a Lockheed Electra 10. Six Lockheed Electra 10s went down near Australia, New Zealand. Only one in the area is still missing, Amelia's Lockheed Electra 10E. According to divers in our pictures, the match between our plane and Amelia's is as follows. Twin tails, twin engines, door and back on the pilot's side, entry to the cockpit through a navigator hatch, no doors up front, toothpick props, it's not a warbird, loophole on top of cockpit broken off base visible, wheels for steering, not sticks, long-range fuel tanks inside the plane, filler ports on the pilot's side, directly on the route she flew in an area never searched, short stubby fender on wheel, round landing light, an X brand written with the two axes. It measures the same length as the millions played by divers in 2012. Time, distance, and fuel match. DNA from the European ancestry. And there was a suitcase with an initials GP that was visible on expansion uh, of the picture. Another thing that I've not reported before, that there was a pair of sunglasses on the plane. And ironically, I asked the guys, why did you leave your sunglasses on the plane? And they said, we didn't. And we know later checking that she was testing a variety of sunglasses at the time. There are challenges. Corals replaced the aluminum and metal on the plane did 86 years underwater. We need to get to the engine soon. I'm sure we'll need Pratt Whitney's expertise in checking serial numbers, but they'll help us with their records. Chris, would you like to say more? The amount of evidence that is now basically built up before the public now, you know, starting with this idea of a plane. Okay, so he's got a plane to start with. And then walking that backwards and having all these things sort of fall into place. It's remarkable. We worked very hard for a very long time behind the scenes to do two things. One, to, to make Buka 2 happen, to get the first ROV underwater footage shot of this wreck site so we could really get some really the, the first really good look at it that we've ever had. And I've seen some of that footage. I've been privy enough to see some of that footage, and it's stunning. It's beautiful. I've posted... We posted a few screenshots of it online and kind of used it for, for promo and things like that. But it's really gorgeous stuff. And we did do a GoFundMe some time ago. You guys were kind enough to donate and to help uh, spread the word on that. 
And that money went to getting Mike Orange from Boxfish Research out to the rec site with the ROV to get that footage. So that kind of stuff takes a lot of time. These types of investigations work very slowly behind the scenes. You guys know that probably better than anyone. That's kind of how stuff works. It's a slow grind. And we're hoping that with this upcoming expedition out to Buka, Buka 3, as we've dubbed it, obviously, it's a groundbreaking expedition. We're hoping it to be the final one. And we are, to go back to the first question you asked, Scott, you know, why are you talking to Pratt? It's because Bill had the wherewithal to know that if we get down there and we're looking at these engines, we're going to have the source, you know, we're going we're gonna to want to have the source to be right from the horse's mouth. You know, we want to get involved with Pratt and Whitney. It's very important that they come on board to have a major Earhart connection on board and looking at this little wreck site in Buka is a big deal. And I think people should really see it that way. We've, we've come a long way and I feel like we're knocking on the door and we're just, we're right there, mm -hmm. but we got to get over that last hump. And that's kind of what we're doing here. That's why we're trying to push this out. Now we're trying to put all this out on the table. And this book that Bill put out, it's an absolutely bonkers story and it's a true story. Yeah. And, and this that's is the only craziest part of, part of it. Right. It's this only part of it. This is Ron Burnson from Anchorage, Alaska. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Well, this is the lead. And first of all, I just wanted to reiterate to our audience who uh, may not have heard the earlier episodes or have uh, forgotten by now because it was quite a while that with Bill's theory... And of course, you know, there's uh, Chris can run down. I don't know, was there six? There's major camps of thought. There's dozens. Yeah. There's dozens now because they all have variations on top of that. You have Crash and Sink, you have Dikumaroro, uh, the Tiger Theory, you have mm -hmm. uh, these major ones, Japanese capture being one. And I think at the time, that's what Scott was saying is that, at least for myself, I was more aligned with that, mostly because of the, uh, the eyewitness testimony. And I know mm -hmm. people, uh, they cringe at that a little bit, but these people are on camera it and they were there. There was, yeah, well, at some <laughs> yeah, point right. it becomes undeniable when you have like, how many people does it take to emphasize this point? And at that point, it's at least considering as being true and very credible people uh, who knew what they were talking about, who lived through it at the time. Now, I just want to say to remind the audience is that with Bill's theory, there's two unique things about it. One is that he is the only one, at least at that time, to have tracked her flight going backwards, you could say, not from where she started, but from Lay, New Guinea, and to kind of backtrack, which is, that was novel and clever, and to calculate uh, fuel, distance, plane capability, all these things, to end up in an area. And then it's also the only theory out there that has a plane, that features an actual thing to go look at if you can get down there, but they were able to, and that's what Bill and Chris were describing. So all these other theories don't have anything except, uh, you know, the most you've got is either uh, some math on a map that shows, well, if you ran out of fuel, it is probably in this area, which will never be searched. Or you have an island with a jar of freckle cream and a, and a hatch rim, and that's about it, which didn't lead to much anything else. So really, it's the only one that has a fully intact plane down there which some material has been extracted from. What is the attitude from Pratt and Whitney now? Because as I was reading in the book, Bill had reached out to, I think, Lockheed and some engineers, and they were initially excited to share information and talk about it. And then when you contacted them again, they were seemed to be less enthusiastic. Mm -hmm. Well, 
-hmm. probably a result of doing a little bit more research on it. And Pratt Whitney opened their arms right away. They wanted to know more. They wanted to know where we were looking. They wanted to do the webinar. They wanted to put the people on. Chris and I went on. We were they were very, very kind. There were 44 questions that we didn't have time to answer. I took each one home in six to eight hours answering them and then sent that back over the weekend so that the bosses could at least have answers for those people that had the questions. Can we just talk about that real quick? So these questions were asked within in the chat, in the webinar, and there were 44 questions asked, right? And Bill got a hold of that list. And just to reiterate, went back after the webinar was done, after he had no obligation to do so, and answered every one of those questions out, wrote it out, scanned it, sent it into them so that they could all have their questions answered. And I thought, that's like the refreshing attitude I'm talking about. You're not going to find that kind of stuff anywhere else, frankly, in any other camp. It's like a breath of fresh air. When you say camp, you're referring to some of the other prevailing theories, not all of them. but Yeah, not all of them. I mean, there there are some certain ones that obviously will do kind of similar things potentially. But Bill, like he really goes out of his way to make sure that, you know, transparency is a huge deal. It's a huge yeah. deal. I really believe that that is how you change the game when it comes to these historical mystery cases that have been cold for so long is you've got to approach these cases differently. They have to be approached differently. And uh, he's doing it like that, which is remarkable. I want to point out something real quick, just for our listeners who were listening to that. And I was thinking about some things that they might not be taking in, especially if they haven't heard our other shows on on the Earhart mystery. The first thing I would say is that when you talk about weighted capacity, I want them to understand that the plane was not carrying as much fuel as it possibly could, because if it had been, it would not have been able to lift off that runway before it ran into the ocean. So they put less fuel on it. They also ditched their life raft and other things to save weight and get down to the weight so that they could take off. Mm -hmm. So that's an important thing to understand. There's two other things. One very simple one. When Bill says that in the one photo from 2012, when he opened it up, he could see a briefcase in the cockpit with the initials GP on it. Mm -hmm. That would be Amelia's husband's initials, George Putnam. So folks need to understand that there's more story behind that. And then the last thing that I wanted to talk about, Bill, and you mentioned this just now when you were going over what you had shared with Pratt and Whitney, but I think a lot of people don't understand what are the trade winds and when did the navigational world become aware of them relative to these flights? They became aware for the first time in 1943, and it was the British that discovered them. She took off in 37, back prior to their knowledge. I asked one of the friends of mine, Corey, when I went over to Rabau, I said, uh, I wonder if she had a headwind or a tailwind. He said, I can answer that for me. What month was it? And I said, it was July. She said she had a headwind. The Pacific trade winds apparently blow strongly in one direction for six months and then retract and go the other way. And I was a witness to that at Rabau because uh, Tovar, the volcano on the island, had erupted and was still blowing smoke all over soot all over where we were and almost like snow coming down and yet six months later they could go swimming you know in a swimming pool and everything was cleaned off so I, I got what he said from personal experience so when they were planning their trip they would not have known this and they couldn't account for that and that as a result 
that headwind and also the less fuel that they took off with impacted their ability to reach any destination like they thought they would, which they found out too late in the flight. You did the math and determined that if they had turned back upon realizing how much fuel was left in the headwind they were facing, that this would have brought them back towards Buka where they would have been trying to land but couldn't quite pull it off. Yeah, and Buka was the only airport that they would have been able to make it back to. They would have had an outside chance shot at Rabau, which was another 157 miles to the northwest. But they flew directly over Buka that had a 2,300-foot runway, and they flew directly over it in daylight. So they knew it was there. And that was the only place after they got as far as Aru and were down to a three below 322 gallons of fuel left. That's the only place on land that they could have gotten back to. And they actually flew back in time to be able to get there and land, except the problem was the violent thunderstorm that they couldn't get under at the time. Okay. I've talked to a lot of pilots, a lot of pilots, and the, the, whole, the whole process of chasing your heart. We've talked to hundreds and hundreds of women that have you know flown flights all over the world. But I've also talked to the two women who completed this flight. I've talked to Ann Pellegrino ad nauseum for hours. Mm -hmm. She's fascinating. I've talked to Linda Finch. I've had conversations with him. I asked Linda Finch, and I'll never forget it. I asked her the one question that Bill had asked Lisa Cotham from the 99s and some of our other friends that are pilots and everything. I said, look, if you're in a situation like this, what do you do? What do you do if you're in this situation? Linda Finch, without hesitation, she goes, I do exactly what Bill's saying that uh, Earhart did. I never mentioned Bill to Linda Finch at all. I just said, you know, what would you do? So like, what's the trip about that is like, I guess Linda Finch had been kind of like, had heard about the theory. had heard about kind of like mm -hmm. what Bill's positing, the whole turn around and go back theory, as they call it or whatever. And she's like, I would have done what Bill says Earhart did, which is she turned back around. I'd never, it's the first conversation I ever had with her about it. Ann Pellegrino says the same thing. Bill's absolutely right. I would have turned around. So when Bill says things like Earhart and Noonan were very smart people, they knew what they were doing. You look at people like Ann Pellegrino and like Linda Finch, and they're very smart people too. They're telling you what they would have done. Why wouldn't Earhart have done the same thing? You know, so it really makes a lot of sense just from a humanistic standpoint, from a, a right. decision-making standpoint, from a pilot's perspective, it makes a lot of sense. And that's something that we haven't really talked a whole lot about, you know, as we promote this thing. Well, that's the interesting angle on here is that, first of all, what they were saying about the trade winds, just to clarify for folks, is that Amelia, and let's, we're going to now, I think, establish Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan, her navigator. We're going to call them plane one. So that's yeah. Electra AE-10. That's plane one. Now, there perhaps it was a second plane we're going to call plane two. Both of these planes were unaware of the trade winds at the time and were caught off guard. So their calculations were off and they didn't even know it. So as uh, Bill has stated, uh, and it's clearly known in the record, especially by eyewitnesses, that her plane dropped off from view from the end of the runway and kind of came back up again once they were able to gain some lift. Mm -hmm. And they barely made it. And they were also not on a paved runway, but a dirt runway. So that was working against them. So they barely made it off. Now they're unaware that they are fighting headwinds that's going to severely drain their fuel supply before they know it. And so... Both of these planes, perhaps, at least uh, with Amelia's, they were caught off guard, and now you have to make a decision. Do you mm -hmm. just keep pressing on forward and maybe hope you could find Howland? Or do you know you're not going to make it, and your better well, if option— If you can figure out where you are— Yeah, if you can figure out where you are, your better you option know it's is, too like, far, turn around. Right. You have to turn around. 
Exactly. Mm-hmm. Unless right. you're just and suddenly decided to become a kamikaze pilot and because you're not going <laughs> to well, make it. You know, well, right? that uh, what Scott said is uh, it may be prescient to what we're going to talk about here. In Bill's book, you will find there are several what I call whoa moments where you're like, <laughs> I didn't <laughs> know that. I, <laughs> I thought I knew most of the the salient points here that were interesting. And certainly there are a lot of them that go with various theories, and especially with Japanese capture. That's probably, as most people would think, is the most outrageous and crazy, but again, has the most amount, I think, of eyewitness accounts to support it. But in reading Bill's book, as soon as you open it up and just reading the prologue, there was a whoa moment. And talked about Pratt and Whitney and their involvement and Lockheed as some of the major players and how their attitudes may sit today and how they may have changed. I'd like to read the prologue or a bit of it from Bill's book. Again, that's Lost in Flight, Amelia Earhart giving cover as a decoy for a spy plane is the subtitle, which is intriguing in itself. But this prologue kind of grabbed me. And Chris, you tell me if you've uh, heard this or what your thoughts are. So the prologue goes in this part. In 1975, Major Joe Gervais wrote to the Department of Immigration and Naturalization in Tokyo, assuming that Mrs. Putnam, and I'm interjecting here, that would be Amelia Earhart, uh, wife of George Putnam, had been held at Saipan during World War II and was subject to Japan, then took over another identity. Surprisingly, Japan responded July 3rd, 1975, from the Ministry of Justice, indicating that the woman held was known to them by the name Irene Craigmile. The name sent by Gervais to the Japanese never included Irene Craigmile. We have pictures from 1932 and 1933 with Amelia Earhart and Irene Craigmile. They were two separate people who knew each other and looked a bit alike. Irene got her pilot's license in 1932 and was taught to fly by Jack Warren and a man named Heller, whom she later married. Irene Craigmile's first husband reportedly died in 1931 from a ruptured appendix. The next pilot's license was issued to, quote-unquote, Irene in June of 1937. Could Japan be right? Is it possible Irene was in plane number two, a spy plane that flew over the Marshall Islands and got caught by the Japanese? Now, that's a bit of a wow moment for me. Uh, Chris, any ideas or thoughts on that? Had you been well-versed in that that kind of direction? or I'm going to lose my job over this. Oh, boy. Yeah, I had known about this for a long time. I've known about this for a long time. Right. There are, there are people that have been talking about this for years. And yeah. it's not an old story. Right. And it's one of those things that I've been talking about for a very long time. I've had certainly many, many off-the-record conversations with people about this very thing that we're now talking about publicly uh, because of Bill's book and the research he's done and all that. I mean, I'm a big proponent, always have been, of it's a tagline for our show, follow the evidence wherever it mm-hmm. leads. And this could be something really special. And what it's generating behind the scenes and what it's generating for cases like this is even more special. So, right. but this is definitely something I've, I've heard about, you know, I call it like the bigger idea theory, you know, right. Bill's original concept is a simpler explanation. This is much different than that, mm-hmm. but it's not out of the ordinary uh, to consider the idea that some of these different theories might have a piece of a larger puzzle that when put together, tell the story. And that's kind of how things like this 
get broken open and get cracked right. and get solved right. and things. So yeah, I mean, I've I've been a big proponent of like, hey, maybe multiple camps. I'm saying that right. in air quotes here. Multiple camps have a piece of the puzzle, and it's remarkable what Bill um, is uh, basically attempting to spearhead here with Buka Three, yeah. and we'll get into that later. But it's really remarkable because it's groundbreaking in so many ways. But yeah, the concept, the foundational stuff, I've been talking about that off the record for many, many years now. Okay, well, just to clarify this for people, is what's being stated here is a fact, according to Joe Gervais, who I believe was asked by the Earhart family members to help find out what happened, and this would be in the 70s. So he was very invested in the case. So essentially what he's done here is that he puts forward to the official, uh, again, Japanese Department of Immigration and Naturalization, because he is chasing this lead that they held Amelia Earhart captive for whatever reason during World War II and would have records of that. And he puts forward this name again. And what's surprising is a governmental agency responded pretty quickly, July 3rd, 1975, in the same year, and says, yeah, we had a woman under captivity. She was held, but we knew her as Irene Craigmile. That's the official Japanese response, not oh, yes, well, we had Amelia Earhart or we had somebody else or we didn't have anybody at all. What are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Which they could have easily done, which mm -hmm. that's what I would have expected, at least from our own government. I, we don't know what you're talking about. Stop asking. Here, they give them an answer and it, it kind of blows them away because like, okay, now we have to find out and what is the deal with Irene Craigmile? She's not just some random name. Turns out she was an associate and friend of Amelia Earhart who looked a little bit similar. What I'd like to do now is talk about how we think she might have wound up in captivity. So, Bill, can you please give us an overview of plane number two? Yes, and I should add that one other comment that when the Japanese did respond back, they said that in addition to hearing the name being said by the party, Amelia Earhart, she also went by the name of Irene Craigmile. Mm -hmm. So what occurred originally for me was I started talking to the Japanese capture folks that are brilliant. I mean, there's some very, very well-educated and thoughtful people. I talked with Dick Spank. I've talked with Jim Hayden and have absolutely high regard for them and all the Japanese capture. I kept an open mind to it and listened to what they said. And I said, this just makes total sense as I was listening to it. And then I remember back the oral history with the natives saying two planes took off within hours of each other. So I said to Dick, do you think it's possible they were two planes? And I said to, to Jim, hey, same thing. And Jim said, yeah, I do think. They were two planes, and I had a sister, I guess, that lived uh, and reported back to him what the oral history had been. So it was that that got me thinking, well, how about the possibility that there really were two planes took off hours apart from each other, and I started going at studying that. I think everything with the Japanese capture folks say is absolutely true. It's wonderful that they took the time to develop very carefully all the individual pieces that they did. 
uh, they're geniuses. Uh, and I told them that. Uh, the only thing I see differently is who was in plane two. Right. But everything else, I think they're right on target with. And had mm. they not reported that, we wouldn't have half of what we have potentially known today. So hats off. I salute the Japanese capture folks, and I look forward to going forward with them on our search for Amelia. So that's how that started. And once I started peeling back the onion, as I said in the book, it just uh, made more and more sense that there were two planes at the time. Mm -hmm. And the thing that was clear to me was in reading Art Kennedy's book, it was clear that there were was a plane that he was working on that he was putting R-1340s on, which was the engines, back in the U.S. And Amelia reported back to her friend that uh, some shenanigans were going on at Lockheed and said, in essence, that uh, as she said it to him, that they already had completed a plane that had the same wing number that her plane had on it, already built and already to go. And this is right after she ground looped in Hawaii, and this is before her plane was fully brought back for repairs. And uh, so it got me thinking more about the second plane. So it appears that there were two planes with the same serial number at lay that took off hours apart. The second plane to fly up over the Marshall Islands and uh, the same headwind that stopped Amelia also would have stopped them. They couldn't have taken off with weight-wise with more than 15,300 pounds. I don't know how the plane was configured, but uh, both of them would have had R-1340s on them. And when I talked to Jim Hayden, he said, my golly, those if they were R-1340s, that was the military version of the plane, and it was built stronger, and it would have actually delivered over 600 horsepower. And uh, so it was surprising to him to hear what Kennedy had said in his book. And when Kennedy talked in his book to Furman Gray, Kennedy said, so what did you do with those R-1340s that we had, assets? And Furman said, I took them over to Indonesia and I put them with a team on Amelia Earhart's airplane, but don't you ever say a word about it. So it got me thinking. That's why I called Pratt Whitney, because I, I figured the engines might well have been changed over to the R-1340s. So I didn't want the engines coming up and then not matching with what she took off from in the United States. So that got the original discussion going. So you feel that the R-1340s, which is it's known as the WASP, right? Co colloquially engine? Correct, yes. That engine was in both of the aircraft we're talking about right now. That would be my understanding. And there was something I didn't get from the book, and I just got from you now, so I thank you for explaining it, because we talked about how uh, the weighted capacity, they only took off with, what was it, 950 gallons? Yes. We don't know for a fact that the second plane would have taken off with that amount of fuel because it might have had weight reduction in other areas. Correct. 
Right. So it might have been able to go a little bit further. And you also said in your book, we don't really know what its ultimate destination was on this reconnaissance. It's basically a recon mission, right? That would appear, but that's what it was. The thing that's really fascinating about this is that this jibes with other evidence that has been collected over the years. Chris, you've dug it up. We've seen it in other books and other theories about Mm -hmm. the engineer Forrest. I think you even know who it was, but that at Lockheed, who stated that he put two cameras in the belly of a 10E, Mm -hmm. uh, two high altitude cameras, which seemed confusing because we knew that those weren't in Amelia's plane. But now if we have this other plane, that tracks too. Yeah. I think that was in Burbank. Well, that was a Navy uh, aircraft technician who testified that he had installed uh, belly cameras Mm -hmm. and had the Japanese captured a plane and saw that, it's over, at least for those occupants. Now, the idea is that possibly, this is what I'm wondering. Well, first of all, when we first started talking with Bill, I never thought, even though I'm of the Japanese capture uh, camp, or at least I started to lean that way, I never thought that Bill's theory and Japanese capture were mutually exclusive. They mm-hmm. both could be right. I've stated that since the beginning. It's like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm on board for this. Now, there are two different things going on here, layered on top and connected. The question I had was, even though Irene Craigmile was a proven associate and friend of Amelia Earhart, and there are some other connections in here, as, uh, as Bill was stating previously, the AES newsletter in that last issue, Amelia Earhart's business partner in the gravel business, which was happening in the 1920s, Lloyd Royer, is reported to have contacted Joe Gervais in 1977, who we just mentioned, to tell him about, quote, secret shenanigans that were going on at the Lockheed development hangar. So there's already mention of this by very inside credible people, but just whispers. And nobody's, as he said, Furman uh, Gray, who was the uh, the engineer who replaced the engine, supposedly people were told things and told not to speak of them, but things were mentioned. That's how these things work. Mm-hmm. No mm-hmm. confirmation. So that theory that Bill had that there is a, a Lockheed Electra at Buka, yeah, that could be it. Now, my questions are... Did Amelia know that there's a second mission? What was her role? Or was she kept in the dark and was kind of a dupe? And they figured, well, if she doesn't know, she just does her thing, which is to fly around the world. That's already set. It's a good excuse if she does get captured by the Japanese, whether they would know about that or what she was mm-hmm. doing, you know, I think uh, remains to be seen, especially as we know, military underlings sometimes go off and do their own things before they get orders here. But we do know that this is before military hostilities have taken place between the two countries. Mm-hmm. But still, at this point, Japan is not playing by the rules. They they have plans of their own for domination of the South Pacific and any evidence that they would find of a military buildup, they wouldn't want out. It's just as easy to sweep that under the rug or put it in a prison. So my question is, how does this start to form here where there is a spy mission going on and did Amelia know about it, do you think? Yes, yes, I think she was well aware of it. And she said at one point in time that uh, alluded to very quietly to a number of her friends that she was involved in a special mission and that she was asked at the highest level to participate in that mission because somebody from Pan Am said that she was foolhardy to be flying that mission. And she said, I was asked at the highest level mm-hmm. that mission. The other thing that's interesting is Art Kennedy's book seems to have a number of statements made 
about Lockheed, and one of which, when the plane came back from ground looping and was being rebuilt, he said he was asked to bore a hole for the R-1340s to fit on, and he describes it in his book better than I'll ever be able to say it. But in essence, he said that he looked down at the fix sheet below him, and he knew that the other stuff was already out being fixed, and it had the same wing number as hers. And he looked down at it. The guy snatched that away from him and said, oh, oh, that's an error. And then he turned back to Art Kennedy and said, if you say a word about it, I'll lose my job. Mm -hmm. Can you tell the listeners who Art Kennedy is and what the book is you're referring to? Art Kennedy's book is a high flyer, and it was written, I think, in 1992 by Art Kennedy, talking about some of his exploits. And he talks about Furman and he talks about also the fact that he was asked to work on this plane. And I wondered later if Lockheed had really built two planes with the same wing number at the request of the highest echelon. It wouldn't surprise me then if I asked the question about the light lens today, I might not be well received for Amelia's airplane. They weren't, weren't uh, rude to me, but they just said, in essence, we don't know we don't have records of it, and yet I knew they would have simply because they had changed the location of those landing lights. And to do that, they would have had to have FAA approval to do it. They would have had diagrams of it, I would think, and I would have hoped that they would have saved it. The only comment I got from them was that uh, they thought Grimes might have been a supplier. I went over to Grimes, and Grimes said, we started in 1934, but we don't have record of it. Okay, so just, just for our listeners, because they might not know this yet, let's talk about the piece of evidence that you're specifically referring to. What are you talking about that you asked Grimes about? I asked Grimes about the landing light that we brought back from Matsungan Island. And it's the same diameter as the light lens that would have fit on a backing at a plane that was a sister ship in Auckland that apparently had ground looped and not been repaired and put in the museum that they had. I had uh, Mike Orange measure the backing for it and checked it against the actual light lens we have. And it was exactly the same. The only difference was the glass I've got was glass blown, you could tell, against a mold. And it wasn't perfectly round. The backing was, and it had to fit on the backing. So at the 10 and the two o'clock, they had ground down so that it would fit on. And I looked at the light lens that we had, and it says Axe brand on it. It's got pictures of two axes with handles that cross on it. and. You can also tell it's glass blown because you can see the bubbles in the glass. And it's fairly heavy, actually. But uh, as I went, went through it, it was clear to me that uh, it was similar to the one that Purdue has an actual picture of a guy on a stepladder, mm -hmm. his son taking a picture below him. 
and it's close enough in that I can see the the light lens on it up close enough. It's got some distortion on it, but you can clearly see it. I say, why are the axe handles pointed up? When I looked at ours, it would have been the same way. Grind marks are the same place on the same deal. I think I can go ahead and acknowledge now that back when you first recovered that lens, the Astonishing Research Corps set about a top secret mission to try and determine <laughs> who made it and looked everywhere. And we had a special team on it and they were we were all over the place. And we actually found a company in uh, Singapore that we thought might have bought the brand. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, brands get bought and sold and bought and sold and they're mm -hmm. not even the real companies anymore. And we did try to call them, but unfortunately, nobody on our team spoke Malaysian, so we were unable to make a lot of inroads. We did have a very funny 30-second phone call with them, but that was as far as we got. So we're, we're still very interested to hear what happens with that lens. Let's talk about what happened or what you think happened to Plane 2 after it took off from Lay. I think Plane 2 went north. We've actually got a rough map that Rafford had drawn when he was still living. And we think she went straight north out of Ley, went over the Marshall Islands and ran out of gas because of the headwinds. And when they ran out of gas, they ditched near the Milietal. And then, according to one guy, supposedly, he was ordered to go over and get them off the wing of the airplane. The thing that's weird about the plane, it was made to float indefinitely if it was out of fuel, and it was out of fuel. And it ditched smoothly enough that it didn't ruin its integrity the way Amelia's planes with the left wing got ripped back. So they reportedly got taken from there. And there's three different accounts from Marshall Island folks that saw both of them. And Belmont was a, I guess, like a paramedic. And he was part Japanese and part Marshall Islands, and very well liked, very well trusted. He was sent out to uh, heal their wounds. The guy supposedly had a cut above his knee that was festering and a cut on the head. I think he stitched the head wound, didn't want to stitch the knee wound because of the fact that it, that he thought it would make it worse. He said the guy was tall, thin, dark hair, blue eyes, and he said he had a thin mustache. Noonan did not have a thin mustache. All right, just for our listeners quickly, it's, I want to point this out, that Amelia Earhart's navigator was Fred Noonan. That's who would have been on the plane number one with her. So what we're talking about now are these two occupants is another gentleman who's similar but does not match Fred Noonan's appearance, who we think was probably the pilot of that aircraft, right? Yes. And Irene Craigmile, who we think would have been the actual recon photographer on this aircraft. But they also described her and said she was uninjured and said that they had never seen a woman with blonde hair. His description, not mine. Uh, Billmont said that, and it was fascinating because they'd not seen that. Yet Amelia had dark brown with red highlights, and her hair was not blonde. And I'm not assuming that it was light blonde, but he, he described it as blonde. Two other Marshallese folks saw them 
also as they were being transferred over to Saipan and it's fairly circuitous route. And they both described the same thing, that there was a woman with blonde hair, they'd never seen that before. So we've got three different accounts of that as they were being taken to Saipan. So those are three different accounts before we even get to Saipan and a possible internment there. And what we have here then, as it made the news a couple of years ago, is a photo of the Jaluit dock, which shows possibly, at least to my eye, two people that don't look like locals. They have more of a European look, and it could be a a woman sitting down, and I believe a a tall, thin man. And that photo sparked a lot of debate as far as dates and uh, shadowy bloggers from Japan chiming in that uh, the, the dates are wrong and travelogue books with, uh, you know, handwritten in dates. It caused quite a dust up. I will say, like the Patterson-Gimlin film, you have to look at what's in the photo, not mm-hmm. the story around it. And what we see in the photo are just two people who basically look out of place on the mm-hmm. end of the dock. And this would have been before the authorities had collected them, or at least the Japanese uh, military had collected them to take them anywhere. And I believe also in that photo is a picture of the ship, the Kosho. Koshu, yeah. Koshu, which has a, what they think is a plane on the back of it being hauled. Which also made its way onto a stamp in Saipan later. Yeah, because they believe it. They saw it. They, they were there to see it. And again, that's a pretty unusual coincidental sight if it's not them. So again, that, that caused quite a bit of controversy. And I don't know for sure, so I, I want to be very careful. Sure. The thing that I will say is, as I looked at the picture, I don't know date-wise or anything else, so I don't get into that discussion or argument. Right. But what's interesting is, if it was a woman sitting, uh, looking in the other direction, It is interesting because Irene was shorter than Amelia, was probably about 5'4", 5'5", and was stockier built on top. That's the only way I'll put it. Mm -hmm. So as I looked at that, it did look like the the form of Amelia, but I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's not impossible. Hello, everyone. I'm Mary True, and this is Astonishing Legends. Now let's get back to the show. One of the things that this does for uh, folks like us, who after we covered, you know, before we met you and found out about the plane in Buka, we strongly both, Forrest and I, were proponents and has said so on the show of the Japanese capture theory based on all the eyewitness testimony and the other evidence that was circled around it. But and then when you came on, you were like, well, I've got this plane in the water in Buka and here's all these things and they match. And we're like, that seems true too. And I remember after we finished talking to you that first time mm-hmm. you came on our show, we were conflicted. I think we talked for several hours after the show was done. We were like, what is happening here? Because both of these stories feel real and true. And now what's happening here is, you know, this research that you've done and your and your book, Lost in Flight, talks about that. And it makes it possible, especially if there was a spy mission, for there to have been these people in two different places at once. And mm-hmm. that it's possible that these folks, that if the Jalowit Atoll picture is real, that might have been Irene Craigmile, and it might have been our unnamed co-pilot or pilot, that we, we're not sure who that might have been at this point. But right. like you said, he had blue eyes and a thin mustache, which did not match 
Fred Noonan's description. Just to be clear, Scott, no one's debating the authenticity of the photo, only the date it was taken. Right, right. Nobody's mm-hmm. saying that it's a fake or it was mocked up. The other thing is that there is an official letter from the government there saying that that dock was in place. Right. At the time, at because the time. that was also debated, you know, uh, internet sleuth saying like, well, that hadn't been built yet. So that couldn't have been mm-hmm. uh, the same dock. But Couldn't have been them. Right. But yeah. But right. that was in place. We have an official letter that was published. So as I was saying, there is... For immediate release, it says, July 15, 2017, from the Republic of the Marshall Islands, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, stating, the Republic of the Marshall Islands is following your investigation of the Amelia Earhart mystery with great interest. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs, on behalf of the government of the Republic of the Marshall Islands, confirms that the photograph found in the U.S. National Archives is the dock at Jabor on Jaluit Atoll. Jabor Dock was built in 1936. The events of this period are still recalled by our eldest citizens. The claim that Jabor Dock was already built in 1935 does not match the historical record. Therefore, it would have not have been possible for any photos to have been taken of the Jabor Dock in 1935. That's the other claim, too, is much earlier than mm-hmm. Amelia's flight. Right, because this was 1937 that yes. these planes were in the air, just so everyone mm-hmm. knows. Yeah. The dock simply did not exist. The elders who confirmed that Amelia and her navigator were brought to Jabor are of the highest standing and reputation in our community. The ministry hopes this helps set the record straight. And so the elders probably thought it was Amelia. And here's the other thing, Bill. What was the paperwork that Irene was flying with when they went down at the Milieto? When they went down, they were given a number of identifiers put in a satchel. And in that satchel was Amelia Earhart's passport, among other items that would identify her as Amelia if she got caught. And the way she got caught was because the plane stayed floating. And we'll get to it later with Hannon Mm -hmm. and the other. But Ansara said that uh, uh, she was a spy, and Hannon said, how did you know that? And uh, said, because of the fact that we got to the plane, we pulled a satchel out, and we pulled the film out that she had taken. And so we knew she was a spy because she took photos of our installations all the way to Tarawa. So what happens now? They get, as you said, by a circuitous route, taken back to Saipan, and what happens then? At Saipan, supposedly radioed to Tokyo and said, we have Amelia Earhart here. What should we, how should we treat her? What should we do with her? And supposedly the code had been broken, I guess, by the British. And the Americans heard that and thought, oh, shoot, Amelia's on Saipan. And they apparent, reportedly whipped Irene unmercifully during the time she was there. I think she was moved in 1943 over to Waifang. Six years. Yeah, in China, probably to get her farther distance away from uh, the U.S. as we were coming closer to, to Japan at the time in Saipan. And they had actually reportedly put the plane that was plane two on Saipan, built a hangar around it. And the orders from the government, uh, U.S. government, were when you get to Saipan, 
I guess the first thing they did was had a guy named Julius Neighbors guard that particular hangar that they had built for her. He said he looked in the hangar from the outside, could see that there was a civilian gray twin-engine plane, not a warbird, but he couldn't read any numbers off of it. And reportedly, two days later, I guess the Army Postal Unit was there and took over control. And he describes, he said he was 150 yards away, saw them take a jeep, pull the plane out of the hangar facing north, and that they made two overhead passes with a plane and blew the plane up. Right. So, and and those details track with the Japanese capture theory. This information tracks with that, mm-hmm. and then they, they they basically burned it down on the field. Yeah, as we said, here's the other thing. It's not just one account. At least one of the planes is there, and it's confirmed by three separate soldiers at this point. So who we have here is uh, the other thing that's interesting is uh, uh, Julius Erskine, neighbors, was the radio operator who yes. was ordered to send the coded message from the colonel back to HQ saying, we have Amelia Earhart's plane in a hangar. He sent that message, and then coincidentally, he was also asked later on to guard the building at night, and that's where he was able to see through the slight opening little bits and confirm the plane. The other story here is that you have another Marine, Robert Wallach, and he and his buddies, his fellow Marines, were in the old office there uh, near Garapan Prison, and they're the ones who discovered the safe and, and just for a lark, blew it up, and they find her flight case inside, which now we wondered, you know, I thought like, well, that's pretty interesting. And as as the Robert Wallach story goes, is that he handed it to a kind of a mysterious officer wearing a uniform, but no insignia or no name designation. Uh, But he did have the officers, uh, as they call them, scrambled eggs on the the bill. This guy was a ranking officer, but unknown, unmarked. And he took it, gave him a little ticket. (laughs) Like, maybe after the war, if you let us know, we'll give it back to you. Of course, that's not happening. But it could have been Amelia's case because he saw the passport inside, plus her maps of the region. Yeah. Later, wasn't that thought to be Forrestal? Was it Chris? Was it? Uh, Yeah. I'm sorry. I just feel like it was somebody that an aircraft carrier was named for. But that's a vague memory of mine. <laughs> right. Oh, <laughs> well, are as- you talking about Nimitz? Was it Nimitz? Maybe well, it was he's Nimitz. Admiral. Nimitz yeah, because Nimitz... later I thought he said later that they thought it when he saw Nimitz or or somebody oh. he said that's the that's who Nimitz was. Who were? I don't yeah. know if it was Nimitz that said that. Forrestal might have been the one that actually said that to him, but Nimitz right. also believed that Earhart was in captivity there. Like Nimitz okay. even right. So Nimitz, okay. Forrestal, I think they both actually believed it. If I'm not mistaken. And as said in Bill's book, a good friend, close friend of FDR was the Secretary of the Treasury, right, Bill, who was asked by FDR to go investigate? Morgenthau was uh, Secretary of the Treasury, and uh, after her disappearance, he spent six weeks, went out to Hawaii to talk to Thompson, the head of the uh, Atasca, to find out what had happened and where things were. And uh, he wouldn't have had much probably that he could report back because Bellert's on Itasca thought she went down near Howland because of the S5 sounds and the strength of the signal. And you had uh, Morgenthau was worried that she might have gone north. And the, the piece with the going north 
was simply, she said at the end of 2014, I'm flying north and south. But the irony of it was she was at Buka <laughs> looking to get under a thunderstorm 1,300 miles away right. from anything to do with Saipan or that area. In fact, one plane, one and two, actually went down in separate hemispheres, one in the north and one in the south, and 1,300 miles apart from each other in the final analysis. Isn't that interesting when math works out like that? Yeah, that's supremely fascinating. I have two questions about that. First, just to wrap up the earlier statement uh, that I was making, the third eyewitness testimony coming out of this that lines up with the other two and this theory is that of a soldier attached to an army postal unit there, Thomas Devine, mm -hmm. who testified that he and uh, one of his fellow soldiers, I think, saw the plane fly over, recognized the bureau number from it, and saw the plane land, and he also said it was flown for a bit, which, imagine being that pilot, getting to fly, <laughs> yeah. but knowing you'll never be able to tell anybody about it. It landed, it was pulled onto that runway, doused with gasoline, and strafed, yep. as Bill just said. And then it was scrapped, and the, the parts buried. So yep. those are three separate stories from three separate soldiers in that period at the same place that all match up. And that's yep. what's fascinating. A lot of these details you can find in the documentaries we've stated long before called Earhart's Electra by Richard Martini. And that's available on Amazon. The great thing about that is that he's got all these people on camera. Yeah. Uh, before Go they watch that away. documentary. Rich Martini's done fantastic work with yeah. the Earhart case. I mean, it, it's he's very he likes to stay under the radar. He's not a very public guy. But right. he's contributed some of the most valuable information to the Earhart case, you know, that anybody ever has. So he captured it before it went away. Now, back to the route of plane two, because this is what's interesting is that if you look at Leigh New Guinea and plane one with Earhart and Noonan takes off, they're heading now due east to Howland Island in a straight shot. That's going to be obviously logically the best route to save fuel and time. And again, it was unknown to them that they'd be fighting a headwind that would drain their fuel. Plane 2, however, has a different objective, and that is to possibly try and photograph from the air the landing strips being built by the Japanese in the Marshall Islands. So from the map in the book, Bill, what I got is that Plane 2 potentially flies north, then takes a right angle and okay. starts heading due east to cover those islands. Do we know the the target landing objective or where plane two was uh, supposed to go? No, and there's a couple pieces of things that are just standalone pieces. One of which was there was a British frigate ship that had traveled north that was just up at Nauru at that point at uh, sunrise. Whether they were to rendezvous, I don't know. Uh, but what's interesting is the one thing that uh, Irene kept all her life and was found in her possessions when she died was there's a map of a private island in Hawaii that, uh, that had uh, drawings on it of two possible places where you could land a plane. Mm. One of my questions is, why did she have that? Was that where they were supposed to ditch the plane eventually? Were they supposed to uh, uh, fuel up at either Howland or one of the other islands? 
and ditch the plane there and get the photographs back to the government. I don't know. Yeah, and you cannot land on that island without permission. And that's been that way for a long, long time. It is privately owned by a family called the Robinson family at this point. Uh, and if you want it, you can go there as a tourist. They have helicopter flights and day trips and everything, but no one's allowed. There's no accommodations. No one's allowed to stay there. It's the westernmost, I think the westernmost island of Hawaii, which would, it would have been a perfect place because had they gotten that far and landed there, it would have been an easy thing to do surreptitiously. Right. There are not enough pieces that I'd rather just say I don't know because there's enough. Sure. Oh, I did want to ask you, when you said Roosevelt asked a friend with a yacht to try to get over to the Marshall Islands and was turned back, do we know who that was to look for her? I don't know the name of the, of the chap. The only thing I read, it, it documented another book, and the comment came back that he tried to get in and was rebuffed and was not allowed in. The Japanese kicked him out of the area. Okay. And so here's here's the next thing that I want our listeners to understand and be reminded of. This being a top secret spy mission, when reports start coming through that Amelia, if if that's what's happening, that Amelia has been captured, Millie, Jaluit, or brought back to Saipan, the government has no way of knowing if it's really her or their spy plane. So they have to investigate if they say, well, which one is it? Because we had a fake plane out there with fake people in it. Can you tell us that? They can't do that because they can't come out. So they've got to send people who are in the know on the mission to ascertain what is really going on in Saipan. Is this Amelia? And then if they get there, they get to the point and they realize, oh, this wasn't. This is the other plane. Then they're right back to square one with regard to Amelia and Fred. It's like, well, where did they go? What happened here? Right. Yeah, just real quick, as you're talking about that, we always talk about one of the, the most famous cases of this is Jackie Cochran going over mm-hmm. to supposedly, and we do know she went over. We have record of this visit, you know, that her, her being sent over to uh, Japan, over to the, uh, Saipan, over into that area. Uh, she's supposed to file a report that she never filed when she got back. A lot of people think that's when she smuggled out Amelia. She never went to get Amelia. She went to get Irene. Irene had the knowledge. She could blow the lid off the whole thing. So right. She has to go get her friend. You know, she probably knew Irene as well. They had all ran in the same circles. They all knew each other. And so, you know, it's very possible that Cochran going over was actually going over to get Irene and not to get Amelia. And of course, Irene came over as Irene. It, like, it kind of starts to tie together. It's like, well, of course, it's not Amelia. It's Irene. But they can't really talk about what really happened. So that ties back around to, you know, them being one and the same and all that stuff. And then you start talking about well, it's probably not likely that they're one and the same, but it's highly likely that they knew each other and that Irene herself was very much in on the ground floor, as she said herself, on the tapes, the Irene Bolum tapes that we have for Chasing Earhart. We've only released a couple of minutes of those. I've got hours of conversations between Irene Bolum and Diana Dawes, you know, as Irene was much older, closer to her death. And she used to talk about, I was on the ground floor. I wasn't on the ground floor of a lot of, I mean, that's what they used. Those are the terms they used in those times. Like she was absolutely in on something that had to do with Earhart and absolutely knew what happened to Earhart, you know, speaking of Earhart's ultimate fate. Let's talk about Irene's fate. Bill, so the information that relates to her departing Saipan, what happens next as far as you, you've you been able to uncover with regard to her and her pilot being removed from Saipan or living or not or whatever happened with them? There are only parts of this that I, I know. I do not know her pilot other than to say it's possible that he may have remained on Saipan till the end of the war. And we have a picture in our book 
of an individual who may be the pilot. We don't know. 1944. They transferred her over, supposedly, in about 1943, I think the spring of 43, to Waifang in China. And Waifang was an internment camp, had about 1,500 people in it. And they used Hannon to go in. Hannon had been in a German prison camp during World War II and broke out of it, was able to get across, I guess, Hungary and Czechoslovakia and back somehow to the troops. And having been in internment, they thought he'd be the perfect guy to go help get him released at the end of the war. So uh, they had him along with, I think, about four or five other people parachute in to Waifang and uh, after the war and, and took it over and tried to get them out. And he thought that Irene was Amelia. And apparently, Irene was reportedly heavily medicated on morphine at the time because of probably all the injuries they'd given her. And Hannon was furious and went to Insara, the guy that supposedly had been in charge of her whippings and said, how dare you do that? How dare you treat a person like that? And then Sarah came back at him and said, look, she was a spy. She was in that plane. We found her film. We know she was a spy. Hannon was planning to try to get her back to the States. And there were a number of other people that interceded. And I think it was probably to debrief Irene. There's some references to the Vatican and a number of other sources of people that might have been helpful in the return and restoration of Irene. Reportedly, she came back to uh, New Jersey and uh, stayed with Monsignor for a period of time. And Monsignor and his sister did a fabulous job of helping to re-socialize her and, and help her uh, get back on her feet. In 1958, she married Bolum, who was a, a probably level six uh, British chap. And Chris can tell you more about it than, than I can on that. And he died in 1970. But I think part of his job, wasn't it, Chris, was to keep her under wraps? Yeah, that's the prevailing theory. Yeah, he was MI6 intelligence agent, right? So right. some debate as to what the right. real true nature of their relationship was. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Here's another fascinating connection that you'll get to on page 34, is that there is British intelligence involvement with this, in that Jim Hannon, it's a pretty daring rescue mission here, First Lieutenant James J. Hannon, U.S. Army Infantry parachutes in, liberates the camp, finds her, as Bill was saying, and at this point, you know, she could barely speak. She was so badly bruised and beaten and I'm sure traumatized, you know, she was just kind of clinging to life. He is met up here. Jim Hannon is met up with a British officer named Ingersoll. He's wearing a, a BDU battle dress uniform, and he said he was an NRA official, and he takes charge of Irene, and he flies her away on a Betty bomber here. Yep. All right. Okay. Now, Hannon says, uh, he's, he says later that he was told that Ingersoll's plane had crashed which to me, it's like, okay, well, that, that essentially clips off that story. 
and that, well, whoever he took away and, and the, the plane that Ingersoll was on, that story ends there. Which if he thought it was Amelia, it bring it puts a perfect end to the fact that Amelia is still MIA. Right. Mm-hmm. You stop asking questions. Exactly. Right. So at this point, you just want to start tying up loose ends here and you separate Hannon from Irene. And now you can debrief her. And as Bill was saying, is that she then gets transported back to the States. It was Monsignor James Francis Kelly who took her in with his sister and she stayed there uh, with them for a number of years and recuperates. And then, as Bill says here, in in 1958, Irene Heller then marries Guy Bolam, and he is British MI6 intelligence. And that's an interesting, (laughs) that they would just get to get together. And and while he's there, might as well keep an eye on her, keep track of uh, who she's talking to. How exactly does the dating scene work where you meet a guy from MI6 (laughs) if you're not somehow involved in military operations or, you know, what circles are you running in? You're back in the States already. Exactly. The the coincidence that he just happened to be military intelligence, who is perhaps now working with U.S. intelligence. And that little bit of uh, unpleasantness and embarrassment is now just safely tucked away in New Jersey, minding her own business. Which is hard work. So that's the other part of it. Yeah. Let me ask you a question, though, Bill, that I did have about this. That information that comes from, some of it comes from the book, The Secret of Wai Fang, right? Yes. Now, isn't that book presented as fiction? Yes, and it had to be presented as fiction because of his connection with uh, the U.S. uh, uh, Armed Forces. Because if he sat down there, wrote about it, uh, he would have been in real trouble. Okay. Writing a fictitious thing, he could get away with it. Okay. So that that makes sense. So, um, <laughs> well, how it, do you? Yes, how do you think uh, uh, Tom Clancy gets away with uh, all the <laughs> things that he that. knows, or even uh, uh, Smiley's people? It's just it was amazing that the things that they knew. But if you present it as fiction and just a story, well, you can outlay a lot of amazing things and pass it off as that. Jean Le Carré or Jean Le Carre, they thought he had some insider information, or he participated in some stuff, and and. Same thing with Ian Fleming. So the fact that now you have a book coming out and saying, proposing these things by Hannon is uh, maybe not that far-fetched. Just the, you know, the names and the dates and places may have been shifted a little, but it's so outlandish, people aren't going to believe you anyway. So there's some safety in that. It's like, well, we don't have to do too much. Who's going to believe this crazy story? But certainly wilder things happen in the course of war, and it's certainly World War II. Now, Scott, you were going to bring something up because I, I, there is another wow moment that we get to with Mrs. Bolam a little bit later. This is Max from St. Paul. And when I'm not being possessed by evil spirits, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. And we're back to the show. Well, the next section... For me, as I said at the beginning of uh, our discussion here, there are several wow and woe moments. And one of these happens in 1965, August 8th, back with Irene, where on that date, the Early Bird Club invites Major Joe Gervais, who we mentioned earlier, to come speak to a group of 300 people who are women pilots from the 99s. We've talked about them quite a bit. Viola Gentry was a friend of Irene and had been widowed. And she was the one who set up the program. 
Viola was also a pilot, and I'm paraphrasing here from Bill's book on page 35. She was also a pilot, and Viola's husband, along with Heller, if you remember him, uh, Irene's first husband, had taught Irene Craigmile to fly. So they knew her pretty well. Now, Joe Gervais had a theory that Amelia and Irene were one and the same person. So that's been prevailing for a long time. People were wondering that with uh, Irene Bolin. Well, here's a couple of interesting things that Joe notices, Joe Gervais, when he attends. So as we said before, and Bill talks about, that guy, he keeps track of his wife, but he can't prevent everything. She's got to appear socially, and it can't be too weird looking. So these are just kind of social events, and, and here is one coming up. Now, it seems Viola had arranged for Irene and Guy Bolum to somehow also show up to this event <laughs> held at the Early Bird Club in 1965, at which Joe Gervais is speaking. And I love this setup here is that she knew what she was doing. She's going to put these people together because they don't know it yet, but fate has them intertwined. And so the moment that Joe sees Irene he can't take his eyes off of her. Oh my, who is this? There's something about her. Now you got to remember that Joe had been studying this case for a long time by now. Now he starts talking to her and other members of the 99s. He starts talking to Irene. He asks to be introduced. She does that. And Joe asks Irene if she had ever known or met Amelia. And she said, yes, uh, she knew Amelia and she was a good pilot. And then he realizes that they look like each other, that Irene looked like Amelia a little bit. And then he notices something. Now, this struck me and stood out to me. I'd, I'd like Bill to comment on this, that he noticed her wearing a silver medallion hanging on a chain around Irene's neck and pinned to her dress was a miniature gold oak leaf rank insignia, the gold leaf, which is the rank insignia for the rank of major, and she's also got an enamel pin that is a replica of the red, white, and blue medal that is worn by those who have earned and were awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. Now, you don't just go buy that or get that at a jewelry store. Those are awarded to you by the government and probably, in her case, a secret ceremony. And in the book, there's a couple of great, at least two great photos of Irene, and she's wearing that same round pendant medallion on her dress in two different outfits. So she wore that quite a bit, it seems, at least in those two photos. The other thing that checks out is that there's a picture taken of Irene here, and she was a little skittish about that, but Guy didn't seem to mind too much. And Irene here claimed that she was a member of the 99s and the Zontas. But when Joe Gervais goes to check, he can't find her name on the list at all. So that was interesting. And <laughs> now here's the thing that's kind of left open. I don't want Bill to comment if he knows anything about this. So it seems she's a bit sheepish, Irene, but she kind of has a connection with Joe Gervais. And he asks her like, hey, could uh, I visit you at a future time? And guys would be okay with it. And she gave Joe her card and she wrote her number on it and address and said, uh, I would be happy to hear from you. So. What had happened is that she invited him and his wife over for dinner that same evening, but he was uh, going to have to catch a flight, so he had to take a rain check, Joe Gervais. And she says, uh, well, that's okay. Just give me a call anytime you're in New York. It's an open invitation. 
And then Gervais, reading from the book here, asks Irene, what is your opinion? Do you think Amelia Earhart is dead? Irene hesitated, then said, quote, as long as people remember her, she will live on. So, mm-hmm. Bill, what happened to that friendship or budding relationship? Did Joe Gervais ever get to meet up again with Irene? No, he didn't. He tried at one point in time. She said that uh, we would have to meet outside of this country. Uh, he tried to meet up with her in Vancouver. She was signed in to the hotel to go and, and didn't show. Mm. I think... Uh, the powers that be probably thought things were getting a little bit uh, too close. Right. Okay. Well, again, just for what she's wearing on her dress, those are pretty telltale signs without giving it away, saying, <laughs> I have been in the uh, intelligence service somehow and did something amazing for which I was awarded pretty high honors. Yeah. And if you think about it, if the puzzle pieces do accurately fit uh, as they appear to. And somebody's been whipped off and on for six years. Aren't you going to want at least your 15 minutes of, of fame on what you tried to do for the country? Right. And I, it must be, I wonder, like, in terms of it being classified or declassified, if it's additionally complicated by the fact that Amelia's location is still, as far as the government is concerned, unknown, and that that's still unsolved. And I wonder if that makes it even more complicated for them to say, okay, well, this is what happened with Irene and her pilot, another person who uh, both of them are heroes, and neither one of them has been able to be publicly acknowledged in one of the most significant conflicts in the history of the world. They did a very, very major thing. So that's really something. Um, Yeah. I mean, hearing it from you is I think stronger than what I could say, to be honest with you, because I think people need to see, you know, you piece this together, you see what Bill's sort of talking about. And, you know, what I've been, you know, I've been talking about this for so long, this is this bigger picture idea. And seeing all these like answers and these little things and these puzzle pieces, I hope when people listen to this tonight, they are starting to see that he's taken that plane in Buka and he's connected it to a much larger idea and a much larger picture that happens to coincide perfectly with so many little nuances and different things. So many that we've gone over tonight, you know, just kind of, so it's just neat to kind of hear you kind of come to that conclusion a little bit too, and kind of see that because that's what happens in these cases when you open your mind and you allow yourself to start looking at other options when we have nothing, you know, so we might as well start doing these things and you start coming up with, with incredible connections like these. Yeah. To that end, let's come back to Buka, where this aircraft is, Bill, that you discovered. And I have a couple of questions about that that I wanted to ask. I also wanted to point out to folks that there were people writing us and be like, what's going on with that? You guys were talking about it, then you got mm-hmm. quiet. And well, there were things happening that needed to play out and took time to play out. Uh, one thing that you mentioned in your Pratt & Whitney presentation that you provided at the top of this episode you talked about finding remains in the cockpit and DNA, which we knew about behind the scenes, but we're not, it was, uh, we're asked not to speak about, so we didn't. But now you're out in the open about that. Can you talk a little bit about what you found there and what the status of that material is? Yeah, what I can say at the time, I was under a uh, three year do not discuss. That, that's over now. But the labs don't want individuals to gather information that might be detrimental to their own individual pieces that they're that they're studying 
we're not going to understand that that part. We've sent, I won't name the labs, but we've sent three teeth to labs. We've sent a femur head out and uh, what may be other uh, bone fragments as, as well. I had one of the uh, teeth looked at by a retired oral surgeon that I know, and he looked at it and instantly said, it's a upper incisor, he said, and it's not oriental. He said, uh, it's configuration is not oriental. I said, is it male or female? I said, I can't tell. But uh, we uh, had on a number of the items that were looked at, a uh, comment made back to, by the labs that they were of uh, an individual of European origin, which Noonan was, uh, it is today. So the other things, they scrubbed back down, and I don't know why they did that, and tried to get SNPs uh, or snippets. Could you explain what an SMP is? Yeah, an SNP is a, a very short piece of DNA, a clip of it. And more and more of the labs are going with SNPs to try to put together larger pieces of things. At this point, they said that uh, the stuff had been in the uh, water too long and it needed to be washed off with fresh water as soon as they, they got it. But I was surprised they were able to get the other stuff first. But then they scrubbed it down, couldn't get snippets off of it. And the thing that concerned me was they said that the tooth that I'd had an oral surgeon look at was a piece of coral. So I figured I'm wondering if they've been gotten to. Uh, so oh. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay. I left it at that point in time, and I'm not saying what is accurate on it, other than if we do any additional work, we'll make sure that we clean it with uh, fresh water and that we have uh, also a good chain of custody on it the whole way to where it goes. Have you had any indication that you that you are being or have been actively monitored in your work? No, I'm just surprised at later efforts and, and findings. A little bit surprised also with uh, Lockheed not being able to present us more information. And it may just be the age of stuff. I don't know. They may have may not still have it. I don't know. Well, what I found, I find really interesting, real quick, just about that Lockheed thing. I was going to mention this earlier, but now that you've circled back around to it, it's interesting that Lockheed would use the reasoning that they used to decline Bill's ask, which was, you know, hey, could we, we could use some help here. Could you help us verify? Kind of do the same thing that we did with Pratt and Whitney. Uh, but Lockheed's reasoning was, well, we don't have record of that. You're going to tell me that Lockheed does not have record of the Holy Grail of the biggest aircraft they've ever built, the most important historical aircraft they've probably ever built. Now, uh, with the most historical significance, they're not going to have any record, none. To me, that's telling. And I'm just, I'm surprised at that. I'm really surprised at that. So if that is indeed the case, it would be really stunning that they wouldn't keep any kind of record at all of Earhart's Altini. That's really strange. Well, it's easy just to say you don't, unless you file a FOIA request. Now, Scott has a little bit of information or is... Calling all John Greenwald Jr.'s uh, <laughs> from the Black Vault, the yes. master of FOIA. This is a name check, John. But uh, it would be it would be interesting to submit some requests. 
I think relating to the other aircraft, to what we're calling plane number two, and also other things uh, associated with uh, flight number one and Amelia's mission as a decoy to start with, there's a lot of things that it seems like we could dig into with FOIA requests uh, that he's an expert on, and he may have already done some. We should check out the Black Vault and see what's going on there. But I think he does. I've asked him on Twitter, and I think he pointed me in some of the Black Vault's archive, some of the yes. stuff they've done. So he's not unfamiliar, certainly, okay. with Amelia Earhart. So I hope he does. John, please, we need you. Yeah, maybe we can, uh, maybe we can, we're calling you out, John, we're calling you out into the street. <laughs> That's um, right. So what I wanted to point out next, uh, having also seen uh, small bits of the footage that the boxfish collected of the aircraft and the state that it's in at this point, Bill, remind our listeners when you first discovered what year was it when you first actually dove on this on this plane buka one i guess well the first uh dives uh tiolo did for us back in 2005 okay his first reaction was somebody showed him a picture of amelia Earhart's airplane and he he immediately went in to try to contact us and said get over here immediately it's the same plane so that's 18 years ago that you've been, this 18 years you've been working on this, you have sunk high six figures <laughs> into this <laughs> yeah. out of yes. your pocket. You've put a lot of work into this. And yeah. so I, I just want to make sure that people understand that. Also, at this point, the aircraft has uh, been in the water, how many years now? 86 years now? Seven. Okay. So um, what's happening is the coral buildup, the concretion from the coral has become extreme. It's replacing the aluminum, which you did a good job of explaining in your book that the quality of aluminum at the time, it was not as resistant to that kind of decay, or it's not as resistant now to the kind of decay that that particular aircraft is uh, suffering from. So it's no longer a, a thing where you could go down regardless of the checkbook and like lift a plane out of the water because a lot of this is a coral formation that looks like an airplane. Yeah, that's right. That's okay. exactly what it is. What's nice about it though is I would say probably two thirds of the contents of the cockpit is still available. And there's a whole lot more to be dug down in there with. Uh, remains and stuff. And there also is a good chance if we can get the engines pulled up on deck of a dive boat at uh, Matsungan, we could have uh, Jim Hayden look at the crankshafts. He says, the crankshafts be rusty. He says, but I'll know instantly when I look at them, whether they're the R1340s or not. Who is Jim? You mentioned him earlier. Is he with Pratt & Whitney? No, Jim Hayden works out of Seattle, still works on the same engines today, believe it or not. And he's with the Japanese capture theory. Okay. As far as I'm concerned, uh, they're my friends. They're the people I trust. And if he'd be kind enough to go over with uh, Chris and others and uh, check it out, I believe him, what, what he'll end up telling us. He's an authority on it. So he would definitely right. know. And he would be a good person to have on hand there. So that's a component to look for that may have survived the uh, all the time in the ocean. That's right. Yes. That's right. There are other pieces. He told me which ones wouldn't still be there, which ones would still be there. And I think uh, the engines would still give us a tremendous amount of information because there'd be very few with those R-1340s on them that they had to have to get out of leg. And... Uh, 
the typical ones would have been the 450 horsepower. Probably the Wasp Juniors would have been the, the, the typical ones most of the planes would have had. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's what Anne had on her plane when she flew around. That's right. But uh, I'm just thinking, too, that I put out probably about $200,000 of my own money. I just I don't intend to go farther with that. But I think it would cost less than $200,000. And Japanese capture folks are kind enough to offer working together with a dive boat that they've got. And they'd be ready to, to try to put this stuff in action. The longer we wait, the rougher shape the whole scene's going to be. And that's why it's... But that brings us to Buka 3, right? Like, what? Mm-hmm. that's what you guys are calling this next expedition. What... What is the status of that? What What's it going to take to get that uh, in action? We've got one possible donor lined up already, but it would take enough sufficient money to make up money for fuel and for food for the folks that are going to be going over there and diving over there on that two-week period of time. And they estimate it's going to be about 200000 total, which is a drop in the bucket compared to most of the groups have gone over before, but it's it would be less than 200,000 at this point in time. But I don't know who may be available that, that can help us uh, meet the costs. It's a pretty exciting adventure from the standpoint of answering a, a really, really important deal. Where did it end up? As the Smithsonian told me one time, you're on the one yard line, why don't you score the touchdown? <laughs> <laughs> And let me just let me just clarify, Scott, real quick too on 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 that one thing. We're not looking currently looking for donations. This isn't a we we did try the GoFundMe thing, and the GoFundMe thing uh, we had a lot of generous donations that came in, a lot of support. And like I said earlier, that brought Mike Orange out. That was successful. That allowed us to take a major step forward, uh, you know, yeah. in this process. So without them, without those folks. We wouldn't have had that. And we definitely intend to reward those original people. We're working on something really cool for them right now that we've been trying to get off the ground for a while. And now we're hopefully going to be able to do it. So that'll be that'll be going on. But this whole Buka 3 thing is everybody really just pitching in to rule this out or rule it in. You know, whatever mm-hmm. it's going to be, uh, you know, we're going to go out there. We're going to follow the evidence wherever it leads. And we've got some really, again, very special people, some big names in the Earhart research community that are kind of coming together, lending their talents to help Bill get his answer uh, to determine if this is just a plane or it's the plane or it's something else entirely. And that's really what Buka 3 is all about. Everybody's doing it for, basically doing it for no cost, just the cost of getting Martin Daly's ship over to Buka. And if you don't know who Martin Daly is, I won't spoil it for you. Just Google him after this show and you'll be treated to something really cool. Martin Daly is an icon and he's willing to loan us one of his ships and uh, under the auspices of Dick Spink, who captains the ship and Jim Hayton, who's going to be aboard to help verify some of the hardcore stuff if found. We've got people from Castaway that are participating on this on the back end on the research stuff. We've got people from Crash and Sink that are in it, people that who were involved in the Titanic that are going to be helping with this. We have, you know, this is a groundbreaking, game-changing, historical expedition that's going to either find, like I said, the holy grail of aviation, we're going to end this Earhart story forever, or it's going to be something even cooler than that. And how often can you say that in one sentence? It's how often can Earhart alone be like not the coolest thing you're going to find? You know, like it's going to either be Earhart or it's going to be this second plane. 
I doubt it's going to be the second plane, but you know, we, we don't know what we're going to find out there. You know, it's one of those situations where like this could change everything and everybody's going to be involved. And how special would that be if everybody was there and we drug this thing up and an engine was confirmed to be in an air, it's Earhart's Electra or whatever, you know, that would be a really cool thing. So that's what Buka three is about. It's not just about getting out to Buka. It's almost about like changing the way we investigate these cases forever and really proving with this case more than anything else that we can like set egos aside and people can like, you know, get on a team and like, you know, work together and like rule something out, get somebody his answer. Bill deserves it. If nothing else, he deserves that. Thank you. And I'd like to thank the folks that gave to the GoFundMe. Give a shout out to them. You really made a difference in us being able to get a lot more filming than we ever would have had possible. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Something on the way for sure. So will there be, I mean, this just sounds so exciting and you know, you've been talking to us about it for a while. We're thrilled that it's out there in the open now. I did, I was curious too, in terms of recovery, because I feel like one point this was mentioned maybe a few years ago, is it possible that the tire is still, because you have one of the photos, one of the images, some of the re, uh, the images that you've recovered from this crash it really, 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 really looks like the wheel of an Electra 10E with the fender and everything. Would the rubber from the tire still be under the coral there in that case? Yeah, probably uh, still left. We, what we know from looking at it is uh, it's got the short stubby fender. Uh-huh. It's a Lockheed. Right. You know, it's a 10 from the glass. And the only one that's missing right now is Amelia's from that area. Okay, so let's bring, there's two questions about that. One that did not occur to me until we started rolling tonight, the other aircraft that would have gone to Saipan and been destroyed on the runways after the United States took Saipan, that aircraft probably wouldn't be on any registries, missing or otherwise, because it's a dupe. It's a duplicate of Amelia's, right? It's a ghost plane. It's It's a a ghost plane. plane. Exactly. Never existed, technically. Forrest and I have talked about this on the show before. We have some folks that cringe when we mention remote viewing, uh, <laughs> but we're believers in it. But we've never had a true, re- you know, other than uh, taking some classes and being surprised at our own results, even in the most basic classes right. with it. This is not us using it, That's by the way. right. This is not us using it. <laughs> this is, it is used and paid for yes. by corporate and different project endeavors. So it's not just... <laughs> If you think we're trying to plug uh, some course, which you can take for free to try it yourself, (laughs) no one's making money on that part. It is used much like any service where you can uh, have, in a way, corporate intelligence. Try Mm -hmm. and find out, get an edge, find out what happens. These services can be hired and they are used. So is that what we're talking about here? Yeah. So that's my thing because of the relationship we have with uh, Lori Williams at Intuitive Specialists. uh, From time to time, she reaches out to us and says, I'm training some high level people and we need some practice targets. You know, what have you got? And so we thought it might be a good idea to ask her people that she was training on the higher end to look into this particular aircraft that is in the water at Buka on Bill's behalf. And and he didn't know it was an aircraft. That's right. Yes, the exact same. Next thing I was going to say, folks need to understand they did not know what they were looking for or looking at. We were not involved in the report. In fact, we got the report after the fact, after it was handed to Bill. So Bill, I would just like you to briefly tell what your experience is with this group that remote viewed this particular target for you with regard to this aircraft in Buka, which as you said, they didn't even know was a plane. They made the hair on my arm stand up as soon as I started seeing it. It was unreal. 
there were two of their workers that were particularly cogent that really, really got to the point of stuff. One of them in the first or second series drew an accordion type of rubber cuff that is exactly like the fuel import, quick import deals that are on her plane. I could not believe it. It just absolutely blew me away. They also uh, talk about tubes with liquid inside the plane that smells like nail polish remover. And uh, they were talking about, can you walk through the barrier from one end of the plane to the other? And uh, the person said that they couldn't, but that she forced herself mentally. And there's an actual barrier there with the tanks. They're partway right. through that's right, because the fuel sludge had a, for people that don't know, it had a series of uh, high-capacity fuel tanks in it for the long-distance runs, right? Fred Noonan, well, either plane perhaps was configured this way, certainly Amelia's plane was configured that he is navigating in the back of the fuselage in the plane, yes. and to get to the cockpit, he's got to crawl on his belly, hands, and knees over these tanks pretty close to the top of the fuel sludge. Yeah, there's photos of this. Uh, one with Amelia with the radio tinkering with the military, the special military radio she was given. He has to crawl to the very front to get to the cockpit to talk to her. And they would pass notes back and forth, I think on a wire for quick communication. But at this point, now when the chips are down, he has to come up there, plus also relieve her for flying. She'd been flying for about 12 hours at this point. So that's pretty amazing. And I just want to let people know, again, the viewer is only told by the handler, you know, this is target, What if they give it's them a number, number or nothing. A random or numbers the, or letters. Or they just, they don't even need that. They just say, move to the target. That's right. That's all the information you get. Yeah, this is all gleaned from them getting impressions from where no one knows. What they said was the uh, tubes contain liquid uh, fuel, smells like the old pouch remover. And the sharp, they were metallic cylinders, and they contained a clear liquid that had an acetone smell. This is on the inside of the plane. Yeah. They also said they picked up a visual of fire and flames coming from the end of the cylinders on the outside. The left wing was on fire at, at the end. And they talk about two individuals, and they called them H1 and H2. And H1, they said, is uh, methodical and precise. And that H2 was not understanding consequences from the data that was being done back and forth. And uh, all in all, they described more than I thought they, they ever would on it that fit perfectly. How did they know they were tanks inside the plane? Only one other plane back in that day was built like that. That's a Daily Express, until at least uh, the second plane that uh, flew along with Amelia. We also had another, I don't know if you want me to read it to you, but uh, there was a really top dowser that oh, yeah. died recently named Gene Parker. And he discovered a lot of uh, the shipwrecks down off of Florida and was royally paid for map dowsing and finding it and he wanted to see the glass so one day i went over he's deceased but there was a woman that came in at the time and she wrote this report bill i remember that day like it was yesterday i just 
learned of Gene's uh, diagnosis, I was devastated and wanted him to know I'd help him through his battle. So I stopped by his house, like I often did, to drop off a book. Gene loved books as much as he loved art and treasure hunting. It was that day when I met you. You and Gene were sitting at Gene's dining room table, tinkering with a heavy piece of glass. Of course, I was not surprised at all because that's exactly what I would expect seeing Gene do at his dining room table. He wouldn't be Gene if he didn't have treasures of some sort laid out all over the table. I stood there watching the both of you as you were both enthralled with this piece of glass. You were doing some kind of test on it as if it were a science experiment. Again, not shocked knowing Gene. The silence as you both were working so intensely was a little on the awkward side too, because I had no idea what could be so important about a piece of glass. That was until Gene broke a silence and said, there you have it. This is from Amelia Earhart's plane. I remember thinking how unbelievably cool it was that I was able to witness something like that. It felt historical and incredibly important. I remember leaving Gene's house and calling my dad because I wanted to tell someone that I just witnessed. I couldn't wait to tell him I'd actually held the lens to Amelia Hart's plane. Hmm. It was one of the days of my life. I'll never forget Christine Ager. And I'm not calling it Amelia's plane, but enough other people are at this point in time that it certainly needs to be investigated. Absolutely. Well, yeah, in any case, and we said this at the end of many discussions with Chris on the air and off and in our presentations, and certainly at the end of Bill's appearance, first talking about Buka, is that regardless of who's actually where and what you're looking at, this is a mystery no matter how you slice it. That plane is not supposed to be there. No, There's no record of it. No one, no private pilot at that time, in that year, in that location, would be flying a non-military aircraft or even a U.S. military aircraft because that's Japanese controlled. That plane is not supposed mm -hmm. to be there, yet it's there. Something is there that's obviously a twin-tailed aircraft, not a warbird, as, as Bill said, so a civilian craft that is unaccounted for. And there are remains in it. There are pieces that have been recovered from it. And there is a larger story that, again, we run into this quite a bit. I have a question for Bill, and I, I think we're going to be uh, asking kind of summary questions here. What we learned initially when we started to cover this is that there are over 200 eyewitness accounts of natives who were there at the time who saw at least two people of European descent, non-native, not from the area, and that shouldn't have happened. The Japanese were not allowing any white folks to be in the area. And if you showed up, they had questions and concerns, and they would not be very partial to that. So with those testimonies, those need to be considered, I believe. And to dismiss them is just, uh, I think, irresponsible and disrespectful. But my question is to you, Bill, like I said, when I got done reading this book, it's like, wow, I, uh, yeah. I mean, not that I wasn't convinced. It's very compelling, and it is just a great story, first of all. Secondly, it's a very compelling argument you put forth here, backed up with some wow moments and some things that are are pretty solid. 
But I was going to ask you, regarding testimony, there is one from the daughter of the chief of police for Saipan at the time. His name was Michio Suzuki. His daughter, Michiko Sugito, claims that she witnessed at least, I think, a man and a woman, a white man and a white woman, being executed on Saipan by Japanese soldiers, of which her father, as the chief of police, was either in attendance or supervising or just doing his role there, and that that's what she claimed, and that they were, whoever these people were, they were buried there, and that she claimed later also that the American military killed her father while he was in the hospital. So who knows why she's coming forward with this claim out of revenge, spite, or just to set the record straight without needing or feeling responsible to support any kind of story that's being put forth. What do you think of that, of when you hear these things that are kind of wild and, and out there? I certainly take in and, and look at any situation. What I also know is I talked to Paul Rafford, who's probably the brightest I ever talked to in my life. And his comment was he thought they went down in the marshals, but he said they could have been Australian, they could have been English, they could have been... Right. Uh, we don't know. We know of at least one or two Americans there was uh, that were there at the time that shouldn't have been there at the time, who may well have been executed at the time and may not have been, you know, Irene and, 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 right. and the, uh, because obviously there is a pilot that we, or a guy that we show you at the end of the war. Yes. You're still alive there and he, he does not appear to be executed. Right. Right. Well, as we know, there is proven British intelligence involvement in this case, in this mystery. And you can tell by the photos and what Bill is talking about on page 64 of his book, there is a photo of a thin European looking man in a white shirt, khakis, those baggy khakis pulled up over the waist like they used to do, as you see in the old movies, thin belt. And hmm. uh, he doesn't look too worse for the wear, but he's certainly not freshly showered, let's say. And he's being led out by American military, July 1944 on Saipan. Now, he's obviously in civilian clothing, and, I mean, he kind of fits the look of Noonan hmm. or pilot number two. It's just a very curious photo. Who is this gentleman? What I would say is there, we know there were a number of foreigners there at the time. There was also a 23-year-old woman from San Francisco that was there reportedly at the time who might have been the one executed. I don't know. Right. Oh, my gosh, I have a vague memory of that, yeah. Chris. Did you mm -hmm. cover that at some point? Yeah, it's been a while, but I do remember yeah. that. It's weird how all I this stuff is coming that. back around. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that is one example. And there was one other, and I, I, can't, I can't remember back to it at, at, at this point in time, but that's why Paul was kind enough to say to me, Bill, if it wasn't the folks that were seen in the marshals, you could well be right. And I think he was referencing Irene mm -hmm. uh, Pilot in his comment, but he said you could well be right on Buka because he said they were people that could have been from Australia, they could have been English, or they could have been American over there. And uh, 
the for example was the uh, woman that was like a fashion model tall, 23 at the time, etc. So I don't know. What I've found is that stories always spring up additional information and stories. And sometimes it takes a while to digest them and put the pieces together. So I don't know who it was that her dad might have seen executed. I've also remember stories of the individuals with dysentery and dying from dysentery on their own. So I don't know, and I'd rather say I don't know to that, but it could have been the woman from from San Francisco. I just don't know. There's a thousand little puzzle pieces on a multi-layered puzzle, it seems, and they kind of connect uh, not only horizontally, but vertically. It's just, it's fascinating to just to find these things coming together also when you come across them, because it's like a discovery and we're on this journey as well. I'd always wondered about the left wing being on fire. And if they had just ran out of gas, how would that happen? Well, there was an electrical storm. There's certainly lightning happening. And then you get a report by the uh, by the young boy on the beach saying, like, yes, the left wing was on fire as they were coming down. They get out. They're trying to use the radio. And they're drifting until on the K until the tide takes them out. Well, I don't think they got out. You're right. The plane. Right. They were in the, in the plane. And there's even conflicting information as to whether or not they were fully conscious after hitting and landing on the K. Right. The boy says they were using the radios. How do we know that? Were, were they standing up through a navigator hatch looking around with earphones on? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Right, right. Too many missing pieces of that part of the puzzle uh, for me to know what kind of condition they were in. Right. And it's just weird. <laughs> Again, we don't really know. But when you have a remote viewer saying that the left wing was on fire on some plane that they're describing that they don't know which plane it is or that it's even supposed to be a plane. It's just odd with a lot of little things kind of start connecting. If you take a look at those pieces, the left engine caught on fire in Tucson mm-hmm. on a trip to go out. Right. If you look at it, study it, in lay, they were having trouble with the overheating and the duct work on the left engine. So I don't know whether it would have been a lightning strike or or whether they were trying to get rid of, or had gas, because they had just redone the engines in Indonesia. Right. And I don't know if, if the lines could have had a problem with them at that point in time, but the engines were still running right until till it was set down. Mm-hmm. Rafford said it usually be an engine overheating is what he said, but it could have been a lightning strike. Interesting, interesting. Bill, is there any one piece of evidence that you've come across that really is the censure for you, the kicker here that that brings this idea, this concept or hypothesis theory together? I think it's probably a combination. I was shocked at the family's response to the uh, GP on the suitcase. Mm -hmm. And the only reason I was able to look at that was simply because a three by four foot section of the nose cone had come down. And I asked a guy that worked at Lockheed one time, how'd that happen? He laughed at me. He says, the rivet's rusted. You know they're going to do that, Snavely. And so I'm looking in, and I saw that. So I 
asked one of the members of Amelia's family, why was she flying with her husband's luggage? And she said, I'm shocked. And I'd never heard that kind of expression out of her. And I said, why are you shocked? She said, I thought you were looking in the wrong place. That's going to wrap up our episode with the latest in Bill Snavely's work to find Amelia Earhart. A very special thanks to Bill for joining us, and please be sure and support Bill's efforts by ordering his book, Lost in Flight, from specialbooks.com. It's not available on Amazon, folks. Go to specialbooks.com to order it. It's eye-opening. We'd also like to express our sincere gratitude to Chris Williamson for joining us. He is currently hosting several podcasts, including Chasing Earhart and also Vanished with his co-host, Jennifer Taylor. And as we've said, he's the author of two books as well. There are links to get those in our show notes. We'll be back in two weeks with a new show. Don't forget to find and subscribe to the other two shows on the Astonishing Legends Network, The Midnight Library, and Scared All the Time. Both are available wherever you get your podcasts. Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell at VW Sound and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also head of research and the social media manager. Our technical producer is Ed Vicola, or as we call him, the mechanic. Special thanks to our announcer, John Bolin. Hi. Hi. I'm Mary Giroux. Ron Bernson. I understand this is with no implied promise. B-S-R-E-N-T. No implied promise. I'm Max. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane at foundermusic.com. All other music and sound design for the show is composed and created by Alan Caressia. Our logo was created by Tommy Beaver Design, and our animated graphics for social media and YouTube are done by Joshua Sloan at DeadStreetProductions.com. Every episode going back to September of 2020 has a transcription available on its corresponding webpage at our website. Earlier transcriptions can be made available upon request to astonishingcontact at gmail.com. Astonishing Legends would not be possible without you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Instagram, Twitter, Discord, Facebook, and YouTube. You can also visit us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content, including the Patreon-exclusive show, Astonishing Junk Drawer, which is available every week the main show is not. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Thank you.